World War Covid. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. The Social Contract, by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In 1762, Jean-Jacques Rousseau published Du Contrat Social OU Principes du Droit Politique, on the social contract, or principles of political rights. There followed the French Revolution that nearly disrupted the human condition of perpetual world war. Christians took 2,000 years to achieve the same goal and failed miserably. Its smug hierarch seized upon Christ's perfect message, its perfection would imply 100% adoption by humanity, and twisted it to such an extent that only one-sixth of humanity would have anything to do with it. According to those hierarchs, their doctrine and transmission methods are perfect, the fault lies with the five-sixths of humanity that turn away from Christianity. It seems evident to these hierarchs that the non-believer deserves to die and be damned. How much more unchrist-like can one get than their fathead concede? Rather than 2,000 years, Rousseau's social contract took a few hundred to succeed, with matching failure. The advocates of the French Revolution and the Terror worship Rousseau and his social contract. If anyone could have made it work the way he intended, they, could. Every conscience-driven liberal, humanist, socialist and democrat has paid due reverence to it since, all for nothing. Rousseau seems to have left out some key element from his social contract, without which it was worthless except as a minor argument against the national capitalism of Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan, that prevails in its place. That missing element is what common law calls a consideration, some right, interest, profit, or benefit accruing to the one party, or some forbearance, detriment, loss, or responsibility, given, suffered or undertaken by the other. It is hard to consider a contract valid in which one party gives something up out of pure affection or fear and the other does nothing in return. Rousseau himself dismissed that scenario. Whether from one man to another or from one man to a people, such talk will always be just as crazy, I will make a pact with you entirely in your care and entirely to my benefit, I will hold to it for as long as I please, and you will for as long as I please. Book 1, Chapter 4 Note, such a pact between nations would be just as crazy, even if enforced by victory in war. It would require an armed guard over every locality tempted to resist it. It would be unenforceable even then, as the US found in Iraq and Afghanistan, and as prior colonial imperialists discovered to their sorrow. I can only think of two such arrangements. The first would be between good parents and their children. The effort-benefit ratio starts out at the total expense of the former and corresponding favor to the latter. It would become another question altogether once the children had grown up and the parents aged, the reason no doubt for the oriental requirement for filial piety, if not from natural affection then from a judicious sense of proportion. The second is unlimited authority downward, unlimited responsibility upward as dictated by Hitler and the Nazis. You can see what that got them. The primary purpose of the social contract is to replace pity, a common virtue among people in the state of nature, which cancels the ill effects of ordinary inequalities between them. People in society have substituted that pity with laws, customs, and virtue, and obviously failed at that substitution. The primary intent of the social contract appears to have shifted from liberty, its foremost goal in Book 1, Chapter 6, to the greatest good for all, the end purpose of all legislation per the first line of Book 2, Chapter 11. These intentions were poorly defined and circular. The social contract will be incontestable because it will be incontestably worthwhile because everyone will agree that is the case. How neat and tidy. There are no loose ends because the Euroboro serpent has swallowed its tail. Essentially, Master Rousseau never found a hook upon which to hang his hat. That is why he never tried to describe the foreign relations component of his social contract. 
not because he couldn't find the time, his excuse, but because the slow crawl of 18th century weapon world communications prevented its evolution into peace world. Unlike our much faster and denser communications today, which make peace world not only doable but obligatory despite our bias to the contrary. To be valid, a social contract must have a tangible consideration its co-signers find worthwhile to establish and useful to maintain through personal and collective sacrifice. It must be something they can see, feel, and hear every day of their lives, worth living to uphold and dying to protect, something a vast majority would support through thick and thin. It would be so obvious that its unmistakable presence would guarantee that the social contract were honestly fulfilled, so obvious that its slightest absence would cancel the contract automatically. Peace world is that consideration everyone will recognize or miss right away. It would be unmistakable. Its failure to replace weapon world, or its decay into weapon world, or its disappearance in a distant land, any of them would be obvious and cancel the social contract. This would mobilize everyone to re-establish peace world, like the feverish retrieval of an ancient battle ensign or modern radio communications lost during a hot firefight. The social contract could not be completely re-established until it had re-emerged like a sunken ship refloated to the surface. But let's see what Rousseau had to say. Authors note, on Peace World, the text that follows would apply to nations as well as to individuals, men and women of course. There would be far less personal degradation than that which Weapon World imposes on us in industrial quantities. This shift from the natural state to the civil one induces a remarkable change in a person by replacing instinct with justice in their conduct. It endows their activities with the integrity they once lacked. It is only once the voice of duty overrides physical impulse and appetite, that a person who had only seen to their own needs up till then, will have to act on new principles and consult reason before their own inclination. Even if, in this state, they pass up a few advantages inherited from nature, they recover others so great that their faculties are pumped up, their ideas mature, their sentiments are ennobled, their soul reaches such heights that if the misdeeds of this new condition had not often degraded them below that from which they had just escaped, they would not stop blessing the lucky moment that tore them from it forever and, from stupid clueless animals, molded sentient human beings. Book 1, Chapter 6 This is the first and foremost consequence of the principles set forth above, the general will is the only way to direct state power in accordance with its institution's end goal, which is the common good. If the clash of special interests made the creation of society necessary, their concord made society possible. The social bond is formed by those things special interests hold in common. If there was no point agreed upon by all interests, no society could exist. Thus it is only by this common interest that society must be governed. Book 2, Chapter 1 Nobody proposed the common interest that legitimate interests could share unanimously. National interests were always in contention, soon warped by supranational ones, religious or ideological, or subverted by lesser special interests. Universal agreement could never be reached even by the light of Rousseau's genius. Peace world is the only principle that could satisfy the strategic interests of every nation. It is the common interest we always lacked, that everyone could adopt for strategic security and mutual benefit. Valid interests would be satisfied and the common interest would be the best secured. At that point and only then, the social contract of peace world would snap into place automatically everywhere. Everyone of sound mind would honor it above and beyond its weapon world equivalent. Please consider the following quote as if our petroleum reserves were exhausted. Indeed, on a global scale, demand already outstrips optimal supply. The world economy risks coming apart under this sorry burden, fully within a few years and perhaps catastrophically. Compared to the collapse of this economic bubble, 
preceding ones including the Great Depression were small change indeed. This is going to happen soon, not once you're too old to care or once everyone is perfectly ready. That fact is inescapable, there's no time left to waste fooling around fooling ourselves. Authors note, in our case, replace the term state with the entire world and the individual with nations and lesser aggregates including individuals. Chaosism does not care what level it surges from, peace world will only spring from the highest level in concert with all the lower ones. But when the social bond begins to fray and the state begins to weaken, when private interests make themselves felt and minor associations influence the greater one, the common interest alters and finds foes, unanimity no longer rules the voice vote, the common cause ceases to be everyone's cause, contradictions arise, debates, and the best counsel cannot pass without a quarrel. Lastly, when the state is on the verge of ruin and only survives in vain and illusory forms, such that the social bond is shattered in every court, and vile interests claim the sacred title of public good, at that point, the general will, falls silent. Everyone, prompted by secret motives, stops thinking like a citizen, as if the state had never existed, and iniquitous decrees are falsely passed in the guise of laws whose only objective is special interest. Does it follow from this then, that the general cause is annihilated or corrupted? Not at all, it remains steadfast pure and constant, but it is subordinated to others that overwhelm it. All and sundry, splitting their interest from the common one, know full well they cannot free themselves entirely. But their part in public harm seems paltry when set against the exclusive benefits they intend to claim. Setting aside their gain, they hanker after the common interest for their own sake just as much as anyone else. Even when they sell their vote for cash, they can't snuff out the general cause that smolders within them, they just avoid it. They are mistaken in changing the premise of the question and answering something other than what was asked. Thus, instead of declaring with their vote, this proposal is beneficial for the state, they need to utter, it is beneficial for this or that person or this or that party that such and such proposal be ratified. Therefore the requirement of public order in assemblies is not so much that the general will, be maintained, but that things are arranged such that, always consulted, it always replies. Book 4, Chapter 1 Peace world can no longer be leisurely contemplated like a philosophical exercise, given a cozy status quo that will endure indefinitely, whether or not peace world takes hold. We must act now, while we retain the moral and material resources to make world peace happen from now on. Had we been true children of the Enlightenment, we would have moved from weapon world to peace world during the 1950s when abundant cheap energy would have cushioned the errors we committed. But we are mere killer primates and must humbly beg loving God to forgive our unforgivable errors and correct them by miracle. If we keep waiting for non-renewable resources to disappear before we act, we will face inconceivable sacrifices with no corresponding celebration. The consolidation of weapon world will become a question of firepower, wreckage and casualties instead of peace world's cooperation, creativity and peaceful intent. Nothing good will come of it, only trouble. Trouble, what an easy term to dismiss. Read casualties, destruction and anguish surpassing anything endured in the past. Terrors beyond count. We should see reason, beware and repent. There is so much remedial work to do, and so little time. The people's opinions are born from its constitution. Even though the law does not regulate mores, legislation gives birth to them. When legislation weakens, values decay. At that point however, the rule of censors won't achieve that which the full force of the law failed to achieve. It follows from this then, that censure may serve to safeguard mores, but never restore them. We should establish censors while the law remains vigorous. Once that has been lost, all is despair, 
nothing legitimate will retain any power once the laws have none left. Book 4, Chapter 7 A censor may maintain, he can never restore, the morals of a state. It is impossible for such a magistrate to exert his authority with benefit, or even with effect, unless he is supported by a quick sense of honor and virtue in the minds of the people, by a decent reverence for public opinion, and by a train of useful prejudices combating on the side of national manners. In a period when these principles are annihilated, the censorial jurisdiction must either sink into empty pageantry, or be converted into a partial instrument of vexatious oppression. Edward Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Penguin Press, London, 1997, Chapter 10, Decius revives the office of censor in the person of Valerian. The design impracticable and without effect. Page 263. Comment. Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net.